How do you get confidence to do something that you've never done before? Or, or better yet, what if you've tried something before, maybe several times, and you failed to the point of embarrassment so that trying it again doesn't even feel like an option? How do you overcome that? And how do you do it in a way that makes sense and you actually believe you have the ability to do? Well, today, I am so honored to bring one of the leading experts doing this for almost 40 years of a modality known as neuro-linguistic programming or NLP. And the gentleman that I'm going to introduce to you, I had the honor of hearing present for a two-hour presentation, but it was so incredible. It was like, it went so fast. I got five pages of notes and I'm so excited to share them with you today. And I met him at an incredible Tony Robbins event known as Leadership Academy, which delivers over 45 years of expertise in four powerful days of immersion, supplying fundamental tools to everyone that goes, including myself, to take back and apply your personal life and your career and your community. And with all the amazing content that I learned through that program, one of the core tools to unleashing your greatness, yeah, the, the greatness that's within you already, not out there somewhere, is through mastering your own mind. And that comes through neuro-linguistic programming, also known as NLP. And the gentleman that I'm privileged to introduce you to today isn't someone that read a couple articles. This is the guy that writes the articles. He's been doing it since 1977, considered to be an expert in the application of NLP to education, training, psychotherapy, and communication skills, training professionals in a variety of fields as a researcher, trainer, and consultant for professionals and leaders in hospitals, schools, clinics, businesses, and in more than over 20 countries. He founded and runs two companies, and he is with us today. I am so honored to introduce to the Scripture Confidence Podcast, Dr. Sid Jacobson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Adam. That's a really, really fine introduction. Thank you. Very nice. Oh, yeah. It's the least I could say. I could spend a couple episodes just talking about your greatness, sir. <laughs> but I want to dive in. And, and for those people listening, they might not be familiar with how tremendously impactful NLP or neuro-linguistic programming, what even it is. So to start off, could you just kind of introduce us to that world? Sure. NLP is a field of study. It goes back to the early 1970s. There were a couple of researchers at the University of California at Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz is about an hour south of San Francisco, if you want to place it on the map in your mind. And uh, these guys were studying how people influence one another. And this grew into something bigger, but they started by studying psychotherapists because the job of a therapist is to influence people. And one of these guys had a background in therapy. Their names are Richard Bandler and John Grinder. So Richard was a therapist and John Grinder was a linguistics professor at UC Santa Cruz. And they were interested in how do people get other people to do things or to stop doing things or to change the way that they think or to change the way that they learn. And in studying these great psychotherapists, they found a bunch of patterns in the way that they used language and the way that they thought about things, the way that they communicated in general. 
And what they realized while they were doing this was they had a way to capture what was going on in experts' minds while they were doing whatever it was they were doing, not just psychotherapy. But once they had the therapy model down, they studied salespeople because here you have two professions that are designed to influence people. And they found that the salespeople, in their language, in their communication, were doing exactly what the psychotherapists were doing to get their clients to change. Mm-hmm. So getting somebody to buy something was using the same uh, tools, the same kind of thinking, the same kind of communication that a therapist would use to help somebody make a change in their life. And then they studied lots of other people and discovered that everybody who tries to influence others does it with some common features. And that started off this field of neurolinguistic programming. But in doing that, as I mentioned, they had they had the ability to figure out how anybody does anything well. So they you know, in the past 45 years, we've studied athletes and doctors and lawyers and, and people from every profession you can imagine. I, I get asked by people from different professions all the time, if we have experts, can you figure out how they do what they do? And the answer is sure. We just have to have access to those people, spend some time with them, find out what's going on in their mind when they're doing what they do that makes their behavior so effective. And because it's not just enough to duplicate what you see people doing on the outside. I mean, if I, when I was younger, I used to teach people to play tennis. Just watching somebody and telling them what to do will only get you about halfway. You have to get it inside the person. They have to feel it. They have to see the images in their mind. They have to hear the ball being hit. They have to know how to lead, how to move, how to step. All of these things happen inside the other person, not inside the person doing the teaching, right? I had a, when I was studying to be a therapist, which I was for a long time, and when I was studying, one of my teachers said, psychotherapy doesn't happen in the mouth of the therapist. It happens in the mind of the client, Mm. right? So that's what we're about. How does this person who is the therapist or this person who is the salesperson or this person who is the coach get their ideas into somebody else's head. Yes. And what do they do to make first to make that possible? Second of all, to make it useful so that whatever ideas they're getting in there, the person can actually use and operate from, and then where to go from there. So the technology of NLP is what we call modeling. We take people who are very great at something and make a model of what they do so that we can take it and teach it to other people. And so that's where the field came from. It's grown so much in 45 years because there, first of all, there are hundreds of thousands of people all over the world using this tool in every major country you can think of, but also because as as any field develops, it builds on its own technology. And we have better and better ways all the time of helping people. So, and that's what the presentation that you saw was about. You know, that was sort of distilled down two hours of of what is, you know, a, a much, much bigger field, but something that people could take away immediately. Yeah, yeah that's the goal. And and it was incredible. And and thank you so much for that. It, that's just, I love how you take these concepts that are so important, but you distill them down to things that are so simple, because if they're simple, we can understand them. And if we understand them, we can do them. 
<laughs> if if it isn't simple, I can't understand it. So that <laughs> so that's how it works for me. And I'm glad you said that because in sharing what you shared, which was so spot on of influencing people on how to sell or buy things. Some people listening to this are like, oh, well, I can check out. I don't sell cars. I'm not in sales. I don't sell products. Well, I actually challenge you on that. And I heard this a lot of people in healthcare of I'm, I'm, I'm a pharmacist. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. I don't sell things. Yes, you do. You're selling ideas. You're selling counseling information to a patient. Let's say a patient is on simvastatin, for example, a drug that we, you take at bedtime, and the patient tells you that they're taking it in the morning. Well, you know, if you're a pharmacist or a healthcare professional consulting this patient, that it's optimal for that to work, taking it at bedtime. And in order to make a recommendation or selling your idea, you have to be able, like you said, to take it from our mouth to, so that they can embody it. Or maybe you're not even in healthcare. Maybe you're a parent, you have kids, or maybe you have that spouse that never listens, but maybe someday is coming around the corner, right? Sell it. Ideas. So important. Everything you say can be used by everybody. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention a, a parent because I've written four books for parents. So, you know, how do we get their kids to be able to learn to do things? Because my, my specialty is the area of learning, training and teaching and learning. And I, I did a lot of work with little kids years ago when I was a social worker. It was funny. I'll I'll tell you this briefly. I I used to have parents drag their their children kind of you know into my office and say you know this this is broken. Would you fix this for me? We'll come back in an hour and uh, and I'd say well what's wrong? And they'd say well they have a learning problem. So these learning problems usually showed up as behavior problems. You know, a, a child is in the classroom. They're stuck, frustrated, bored, whatever it might be, and they start misbehaving. And the schools, of course, the teachers and the principals would say, you know, parent, get this child under control. And underneath it, there was some kind of a learning problem. And that's where, where the emotional part came in. The child was frustrated or angry or, or upset or just confused. And I used to get in trouble for a while till they realized I could actually do what I said I could do. Because they said, well, you're not a learning specialist. You're just a social worker. You're supposed to be making the child behave better. Forget about all this learning stuff. And I said, no, that's backwards. Yeah. Let's solve the problem that's underneath. Yeah. And then the behavior will take care of itself. The other part was I thought that that was unethical, frankly. I said, why, why am I going to work on this child's behavior and send them back in to a situation that's painful? I, I don't want to do that to anybody. That just seems wrong to me. And what I discovered was that learning problems are about the easiest thing to solve ever. They, they were so much easier than, than the normal run-of-the-mill things that, that people would bring in or any kind of counseling. And, and it was all about how people think, how they process information in their head. What are the pictures in their mind? What are they saying to themselves inside? What are they feeling as they're having some experience? And what state of mind are they in? And when these kids would be in class, their state of mind was one of frustration and anger. And all they could think about was the door <laughs> and how to get out of it as quickly as they possibly could. Or what's happening out the window that was way more interesting than whatever was happening in front of them uh, in the classroom. And, and that's no state to be learning in. So I started studying how people's states would affect their learning. 
and there's a, a tremendous literature on this. I mean, we kind of know this. We know how to help people get into states of mind where they learn better. And then using that with kids, everything else becomes easy. Because if you just show them what to do and they find that they can do it, problem solved. They feel so much better. And then they're, they're say, you know, send me back. I'm ready to go back into the classroom. Now I can do it. And then they feel some success. Much like what you were talking about when somebody's had any kind of a failure. You know, I discovered a lot of learning problems start with some kind of failure, which surprised me. I, I didn't realize this was going on. But kids who have, quote, dyslexia, which I don't believe in, by the way, but they have some kind of a reading problem. Invariably, it started in the classroom. Usually when they're either sitting in the circle or at their desk, and you, you take yourself back and remember in school, everybody got to read one sentence and then the next person would read a sentence, the next person that. What happens when somebody makes a mistake? Uh, then the teacher depends on the other kids, how they feel about themselves when they make the mistake, right? But if somebody scolds them or ridicules them or corrects them too harshly, what do kids do? Well, like you said, embarrassment, the feeling of failure, whatever it might be. Well, now they're in a state of mind where they're not learning anymore. All they're thinking about is how bad they feel. Yeah. And they get stuck. They get stuck right there. So the, the, the progression they were making of learning how to read stops. And there are certain kinds of errors that all kids make when they're learning to read. There are standard things that happen. If you think about the alphabet. We have M's and N's that look kind of the same. We got V's and W's. We got P's and Q's and then D's and B's. And all these things are kind of, they look kind of the same. Well, one of the things that human beings are very good at is making very fine discriminations. We can notice these distinctions between things with practice. You can't do it right away. So what happens to these little kids? They get frustrated, and now they can't make the fine distinctions anymore. And they start mixing up the B's and D's and the, and the M's and N's and all that. And somebody says, ah, there's something wrong with their brain. And there's nothing wrong with their brain. That <laughs> was they had what for them is a little trauma. Like anybody, if they're trying to do something and they have a failure that's embarrassing or feels bad or, or makes them feel like, they're not good enough or there's something wrong with them, that's going to stick in some ways. So we could talk about trauma for days, which we're not going to do, but it's the same. So let's take this into to adulthood. Pharmacist, doctor, nurse, doesn't matter who it is. Somebody tries something and it doesn't work. They're embarrassed. Maybe they get scolded. Maybe they get complained about. Maybe they get, you know, some supervisor, uh, sanctions them in some way, says, well, you know, you're punished. You can't do X, Y, or Z for a while. All these things happen. I've worked in healthcare. I've seen all these things happen before. And now what happens to this person's self-esteem? Ah, oh, messed up. And this can happen in any system too. So let's talk about systems for just a minute. Sure. I remember being in systems where, and this is in corporations, hospitals didn't matter because I worked in both. If you made a mistake, there was always somebody there who would remember it. Mm -hmm. Have you been in this kind of situation before? Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. The next time you tried something new, somebody says, ah, interesting idea, but remember when you screwed up before? And you go, oh. And what happens to your motivation, your 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 drive to do something new? Well, out the window. Just like the little kid in the classroom. You want to read for us again, little Timmy, little Susie? No, thank you. <laughs> Didn't go well the last time. I don't want to do that. You want to come up to the board and show us how to do this problem? No, please, not that. And this ends up being something that affects people deeply. Yeah. Even if it even if it seems small, those small traumas tend to amplify themselves because they turn into beliefs, like you said. So what ends up happening is we we say to ourselves, Oh, I messed that up. There must be something wrong with me. I no longer believe I have the capability. Right? Yeah. And both about capability are really intense. That's something that, that's really strong. So, so think about this for a minute, because this is something I like to talk about with people. How many people do you know, this is for everybody out there, but you had, how many people have you known who were really, really good at something? And you pointed out to them and they go, nah, it was, a, I, I got lucky. Or no, I you know a couple of times I was good, or it just seems that anybody could do it. No, it's it doesn't, and they discount whatever their ability is, right? Because they don't have the belief that what they can do is special and worthwhile. The opposite is just as bad, you know. How many how many people do we know who think they can sing? You know, go to any karaoke bar and you'll see people up there who absolutely believe they've got a great voice and everybody else is like, you know. So our beliefs about what we can do often have nothing to do with what our actual abilities are because beliefs are built out of something else. Yes. They're not built out of reality. They're built out of whatever we do in our head to organize reality for ourselves. Yes. Right. Some people believe that they're good at something because they can do it three times well. You go, oh, okay. Some people believe they're good at something because they can do it for three months well. Some people believe they're good at something because they did it once. Some people believe they're good at something because the picture in their head said they're good at it, whether they've ever done it before or not, right? And some people only believe they're good at something because the right person in their life tells them they're good at. And there are those of us who have people around us who are never going to tell us that, right? And so if we're reliant on that outside thing, like you were talking about before, if we're reliant on that person the outside telling us that we're good at something and they're never going to do that, what happens to our belief? So all of us need to, to, to master several things. One thing we need to learn to do is manage our state of mind. That's the first thing we need to learn to do. And if we're in a lousy state of mind, fix that first. Right? If you start your day going to a class and you're in a lousy state of mind, it's not a good time for you to learn. Yep. So fix that first or go do something else. But get yourself into a, a state where you can learn. We'll talk about how to do that in a minute. Second thing people need to do is they need to understand that their beliefs are going to be up to them. If they're waiting for the outside world to convince them of things, they're going to have trouble 
because the outside world is unreliable. Look, look at our politics today. You can find somebody who believes everything. There are people out there who absolutely believe the world is flat. I, you know, no matter what happens to their eyes when the ship goes over the horizon, they'll still come up with an explanation why that's an illusion. Well, I actually read something where somebody said they don't believe in Australia because they don't know anybody who's ever been there. So they don't believe there's a place called Australia. And I'm reading this going, oh my goodness, <laughs> what do you have to do in your head for that? So we have to get a hold of how we believe things, how we structure our beliefs, how we make the decision that something is true, worthwhile, good, good for us, right? Useful. We have to decide how we make those decisions. It's a decision we make. It's a decision about decisions. We can call it a meta decision. It's a decision about decisions. How do we decide things? And it's one of the things in NLP we've spent years on is people's decision strategies. Yeah. Not the ones they make on paper in front of them, but the ones they make up here. Right. What do they have to do? What pictures do they have to make? What do they have to say to themselves? So, so those things are crucial. The third thing is people have to know how they change. They have to know what works for them when they're making a change in their life, right? So there's beliefs, the decisions we make, there's the state we're in, and there's how we go about changing. Now, you'll remember in the uh, presentation that I did for Robbins at the Leadership Academy, one of the things I talked about was drives, what drives people. And... This is very important when we understand change or a problem making a change. Richard Bandler, uh, one of the developers of NLP, was having a talk one day with a woman named Virginia Satir. Virginia was one of the greatest psychotherapists in history. She's basically the first person practicing family psychotherapy, the first person to bring whole families into the room and work with them. That was, for reasons I won't go into, considered essay. You couldn't do it. It was something that, that went out with the time of Sigmund Freud around the, the turn of the century, around 1900. You weren't allowed to do that. But she said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And she was brilliant at it. She was amazing at helping people. And Richard asked her, what about people who come to us who really can't change and they're in life-threatening situations? Why does that their natural survival instinct kick in? Why doesn't somebody just make a change if their life is threatened, yes, isn't survival the strongest drive in human beings? And Virginia said, no, the strongest drive in human beings is to do what's familiar over and over and over again. You know, And that's a really profound thought. That really had a great effect on me when Richard told me that. So why is that? Well, if we were back in caveman days, you didn't venture too far away from the people that you knew. You didn't venture too far away from the territory that you knew. You didn't go out and make big changes in what you were eating or how you were uh, trying to protect yourself. If you made big changes and they didn't work, you might not get a second chance, right? So we've all evolved with this system inside us, this genetically hardwired system that says, watch out for things being different or strange or out of place because they might be dangerous. It's built in. Yes. We're built to look out for the saber-toothed tiger that might be up the tree or around the corner. 
And we need that. We need those fears. We need to have that kind of caution. But if it keeps us so stuck that we can never do anything new, then it's not serving us. It's actually damaging us. So what we have to do is we have to know which things we can do safely and which things we can try. But what's happened in modern times is we're not worried about the saber-toothed tiger anymore. We're worried about a scolding. We're worried about being embarrassed. We're worried about a failure. We're worried about losing money or losing face or losing time or having somebody else make fun of us, being embarrassed. Those things for us are just like the saber-toothed tiger. They create the same feeling inside of our heart pounding, right? Yeah. So the things we have to watch out for. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to learn how to get ourselves in a state of mind where we feel safe when we're trying to do something new. Now, what happens naturally? We've made a mistake before. We're going to try this thing again. What are we going to automatically remember? We're automatically going to remember the first time, the time we failed, the time we made a mistake. Right? The, the analogy I like to make is this. You go into a restaurant for the first time and you have a fantastic meal. Don't you sit there saying to yourself, oh, I can't wait to come back here. Yeah. Right? I'm going to bring these people with me. I'm going to have that next time. I'm going to have this again. And maybe you don't go back for a long time. Maybe you don't get to go back for a couple of years. But as soon as you walk back into that restaurant, you go, oh, yeah, this place. And you see the menu and you go, I had that last time. Oh, and I was going to bring these people. I don't remember that waiter or that waitress. So it's a natural reaction. It's the way our brain is built. We're built that way so we remember where the dangers are. That's how it works. So when we try something new, but it's like something we did before where we had a bad experience, that's the danger. We're remembering the danger. We're trying to go, wait a minute, I don't want to have that again. Ooh. And we go into a state of fear rather than a state of creativity, a state of achievement, safety, perseverance, organization, all these other things that would help us actually achieve that goal. So what we need to do is gather our resources together so that we can do those things and overcome the bad feeling. And there are a lot of ways to do it. The easiest way is to use our memory because that's how it's built. So I know we've just got a few minutes left, but let me give you a brief primer on memory. Yes, for all those of you who have forgotten all the neuroanatomy you studied when you were in pharmacy school or whatever, it's okay. I've forgotten most of the neuroanatomy I studied too. But here's what we need to remember. Our brain uses memory in a distributed fashion, right? All the visual things that happen inside our head happen back here. All the auditory things happen on the sides. The kinesthetic things happen over on the right and in the older parts of the brain, so the feeling parts. So all those pictures, sounds, and feelings are distributed throughout the brain. They're in different places. And each one of those things is split up into lots and lots of little pieces. So when you go to remember something, this part of your brain up here, we call it the left prefrontal cortex, right above the left eye is like a little switchboard. We call it the executive function. And it goes and collects all those pieces and builds that memory back up again. 
What it's doing at the same time when it does that is it's recreating the state of mind that you were in when you had the experience. So if we're talking about learning something new, if I can remember the time I was in high school in math class and I was learning really well, and I can recreate all those pictures, sounds, the feelings that went with it, if I can remember what the teacher looked like, the board, the stuff we were doing, the other kids around me, the more vividly I can remember that, the more I'm recreating that state of mind where I can learn really, really well. If I can remember a state of mind where I accomplished something, the getting a degree, the first book I wrote, some great tennis match I won, uh, something when I was playing music years ago, I used to play music, so some, some great triumph where we were on stage with thousands of people having a great time. If I can remember those things as vividly as possible, I'm recreating those experiences. If we start that way, to go do the new thing. That will overcome the natural tendency to go back into the state where we felt the failure the last time, right? So I forgot how to do something before, I did it badly or I messed it up. Now I wanna try to do it again. Stop first, remember times when I did things really well, Yes. right? I remember uh, one example of this. I was working uh, at Singapore Airlines. They don't mind me sharing this story. I, I did lots of work for them over the years. It's the best airline in the world, and they've got great people there, but they're not perfect. And they made some mistakes when they were doing a, a change, a big system-wide change of their entire IT system, all their computing stuff from ticketing to design to HR, everything, the entire... IT system was being upgraded, and they didn't design the change very well. They did things too fast. So they asked me to come in and help all the IT people. There were 200 of them. And we split them up into groups of 25, and I did all these classes with them for a couple of days uh, for each group of 25. And I remember going into the first class, and you never saw more dejected people in your entire life. And these are highly skilled, highly trained people, but they were morose. They were depressed. They were upset. And now here's the thing. They wanted to make the change. They didn't have any, any uh, compunction about that. They knew the system needed to be upgraded. It was being upgraded well. The stuff they were learning was good. They wanted that. But they were going crazy because it was happening too fast. And they all thought there was something wrong with them. And two things happened. One thing that happened that really scared them was they started making mistakes with the old stuff they were used to using. And they said, what's going on? We're making mistakes with the old stuff. And I said, it's normal. When we're trying to learn something new, it takes all of our attention. And anything that we were doing before that took any of that attention, we're going to mess it up. So be prepared for those mistakes. Watch out for them. Be extra careful with the things that you might make mistakes on. Yeah. But the other part was, the second thing was, they said, this is just too hard. We're too confused. We're, we're too upset. They were in a terrible state. And I asked them, what's the biggest change that you'd make? That it came, and, and this is what happened. They said, ask this woman first. I said, okay, what's changed? And she said, everything, right? 
And I said, really? I said, new, new office? She said, no, same office. The, a new computer. No, it's actually the same computer. So, okay, new boss. No, same boss. Uh, different hours? No. Different pay? No. Uh, hmm. You're going to the same place at work, the same people, same. So what's actually changed? And she said, well, actually, we're working with a new operating system in the, in the computer system. And I said, and, and as I'm doing this, the whole room is doing the same thing. They're going, oh, yeah, most stuff has stayed the same, hasn't it? Wow. It hasn't really. It's only this one thing that changed. But when something scares us, it gets and everything else is drowned out. It goes away. We don't see it. So I said to her, so the operating system is different. I said, yeah. How long does it usually take you to learn? Have you ever learned a new operating system before? I asked them this sort of rhetorical question because these people are experts. They've been to learn new operating systems plenty of times. So they all said, yeah, of course, we've learned new operating systems. I said, how long does it usually take? And they all agreed it takes three or four months, and then they got it down. I said, okay, how much time have you had? Oh, five weeks. I said, so not enough time. We went, well, yeah, I guess it's just not enough time. They said, well, when will the mistakes stop? I said, in three or four months. <laughs> You've got the new system down. So the other thing people have to do when they're making a change, they've got to start by getting themselves into a state where they can do it, where they've got their resources, where they know how to be effective and efficient, where they know how to be focused. They know how to feel safe while they're trying something new. They can be perseverant. They can be organized. They can be creative. They can do all the things they need to do when they're doing something new. The other thing they have to do is give themselves adequate time. Sometimes today, we're all expected to know things instantaneously. We don't work that way. We learn things by doing them. Yeah, we read the books, we read the manuals, but we got to do things. And yeah. we have to work with that information. And once we do that, then we're okay. So people need three things to make a change. They've got to have the motivation, which is obvious, and they're going to get that from being in the right state. They've got to have the means, so they got to know how to do it, and they got to have the chance to do it. Yeah. they got to have the opportunity. They've got to give themselves the time to actually make those changes. They can do that. They can do new things. They can get over their fears. They can manage themselves. They can start to experience the success that they think they're supposed to have, that we all know everybody's supposed to have. And they can let go of some of the things other people have told them in the past about what it means when they make a mistake. Because there's only one thing it means when you make a mistake. That means you made a mistake. That's it. Yeah. And you make a mistake, you go fix it. So spot on. This was absolutely incredible. I, I mean, I'm interviewing, but I've taken so many notes. But the main last point, like, you know, you could label it however you want, but nothing has any meaning except the meaning we choose to give it, right? So you can label it failure if you want to go that extreme. But what does fail really mean, right? First attempt and learning. And then to reiterate some of your brilliant points, managing change starts with the three things you need. Motivation, meaning why do you want to do it? Number two, means how are you going to do it? And then three, the opportunity or the chance to do it. And something that you said is that when you gave the presentation that was so incredible was that state-dependent learning. So going back to how we started this podcast of 
if you if you tried something that you want and you failed before, whether it's once or several times, it, when you start it again, your default to protect yourself from how we're wired is to get associated back to the failure to avoid relive right. pain. So instead of going back to the default, go back to something else by modeling people who have done what you want to do. Turn your hints into cans and your dreams into plans by following the mentors that have done what you want to do. Model the mentor because success leaves clues. And some of the best clues for how to do that, for how to script your confidence, came from one of the best mentors that I've met and had the privilege in my lifetime, you. So I just so... Seriously, it's all like this is I'm like I did this. I'm going to go back, like re-listen and take more notes like this is awesome. So, so good. So I I mean that sincerely. You've made such an impact. So many lives. Uh, I mean, Tony Robbins himself. So the the work that you do that you've been doing for so long, it's just absolutely phenomenal. And I want to make sure that people can get into your world, Dr. Jacobson. So there will be links to this in the show notes, his website. SidJacobson.com. He has more info on the training methods. He also does coaching and consulting, whether that's for yourself as an individual or as a business. But he also has those books that he mentioned that he wrote. And just just an absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal professional. He made so many contributions to so many organizations and individuals, and I'm one of them. So I just want to say thank you. Your time was incredible. Uh, I'm going to be listening to this. This is definitely like a, a check on my bucket list getting to talk to you. So I, I just, so thank you for your time today. Well, thank you. I must listen to it myself. I must've said something worthwhile. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you, Adam. This is great. I really appreciate it in your support. This is, this is wonderful. And the compliments are very much appreciated. All true. Just making observations uh, from the, the wisdom that it just, it, I, I could just keep talking about it. It's, it's just so good. So. With that said, I really appreciate your time, Dr. Jacobson. This was absolutely incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can't say it enough because this was just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Thank you very much. Anytime I can help, let me know. Guys, this is Dr. Adam Martin signing off with the Dr. Sid Jacobson. Go forth, be great, and dispense your full potential. Mm -hmm.